morning. Uh, my name's Lois. I'm part of the leadership team here. And this is, uh, as I was saying, the final uh, Sunday in a four-week teaching series we've been doing uh, on, the, on Psalm 23. And I've just been so blessed by uh, meditating on the idea of God as my shepherd, how he painstakingly cares for me as his sheep, and how he makes me rest in green pastures and refreshes me beside still waters, how he promises to be there even in the darkest valley as well as on the hilltops. And today we're looking at the two final verses in that psalm and particularly what they tell us about the generous nature of our God. So I wondered actually if we can read the whole psalm, seeing as though we're finishing the psalm today. Um, So if you have Bibles, please do open with me. At Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And these are the verses that we'll be uh, looking at today. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So a couple of Christmases ago, I uh, went to go and buy a Christmas present for my friends, Abby and Drew, lovely friends, and I felt really smug about it. I'd got uh, some oil and vinegar, and they love cooking, and it was a really nice set, and I thought, well, they'll love that. And so I went round to their house and we exchanged gifts. And this is the gift they got for us. It was a a beautiful frame. And it's what it is, is a copper embossed image of an audio file of a song that Chris and I had written a couple of years before. So on on the thoughtfulness scale, it's pretty, pretty thoughtful, isn't it? And imagine what my first reaction was. I was really annoyed really annoyed. Look at my oil and vinegar set now. It's a joke. How could they? And I obviously didn't say any of that out loud. Um, we love it. This is, it's in our living room. It's absolutely beautiful. We were blown away. My first reaction, though, was, well, oh, that's just great. Now, how many of you, I'd like a show of hands, at Christmas, when you're buying presents for people, feel a bit stressed that your gift might not be quite as good as the gift straight up there. Yeah, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Why is it so uncomfortable? Why is it so uncomfortable? I want to suggest that it's uncomfortable because it's natural for us to want generosity to be fair, for us to want generosity to make sense, to be transactional. I give and I receive. 
And it's actually a theory that was developed in the 1960s by a behavioral psychologist called equity theory. The idea being that our inputs need to be roughly the same as other people's inputs. And therefore, we receive roughly what other people receive. And this theory is usually used with workplace or relationships. So if, for example, you go to work and you're working 10 hours a day and you get this piddly little salary in, in response, you're not recognized for your work. After time, this theory suggests that the imbalance... Um, will mean that you'll be unhappy and you'll want to leave. And similarly, with relationships, it suggests with friendships, you know, if you're traveling for, to visit a friend every single time and they never come and visit you, after a while you're going to think, mm, what is, it, mm, is this friendship working? And that's how we tend to think about things. We like them to be fair. God's generosity is nothing like this. It is absolutely nothing like this. And though we know that, actually, this idea of fairness is so entrenched in society in the way that we think and behave that sometimes without even knowing it, the way that we relate to God and think about God isn't quite right. It kind of betrays the fact that we don't quite get it. We don't quite get what his generosity is. So today we're going to focus on his generosity. And my prayer is that he'll renew our minds with his idea of what generosity is. And I've got three points. Um, Firstly, that God's generosity is unexpected. Verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The image in the psalm changes. So you will have noticed the first half of the psalm is about the sheep. And shepherd, and then in verse 5, it changes a bit to this idea of a guest attending a kind of banquet, a host welcome, uh, welcoming you uh, to a table. But the psalmist has actually painted an even more odd scene than that of just a banquet. There's also this threatening presence. So imagine it with me. You've been in a battle. Your blood pressure is running high. You're more intimidated than you've ever been. You've forgotten what it feels like to be comfortable and safe. And you might genuinely be wondering whether you'll make it. And there, in the midst of all of that, is a smiling host. And he's serving up and he says, what can I get you? And the enemies are clamoring round and they're sharpening their weapons, but he is sharpening a serving knife. And he's not looking at them, he's looking at you. What's going on here? These two contrasting things all at once. And I I was trying to think of examples of where I've seen this before or something similar just to try and get at it. Is it a bit like this scene in the Titanic when the Titanic is sinking and there's this string quartet playing on deck, is it like that? Is it like this moment in the First World War where two enemies have been fighting, sworn enemies, and then Christmas comes, and in certain areas on the front, soldiers from opposing sides exchange gifts and even play football together? Or is it like 
an oasis in a desert. It's a dry land and then suddenly something springs up. Or like a warm fire in the middle of an enormous storm. The feast is not there to distract us from our enemies, like putting our fingers in our ears and saying, oh, no, no, I'm just going to eat some food. No enemies here. That's not what this picture is. It shows us two completely different realities at once, that there are enemies and that God is generous. And it's the last thing that we would expect. God's answer to our enemies is generosity to us. God's answer to our enemies is in being generous to us. So what is it that he's providing? What does this feast symbolize? And the whole psalm has been about the profound and loving communion between the sheep and the shepherd, between the creator and the created. And though God does provide us and help us with physical things, it's the spiritual feast that David is getting at. He had a life of ups and downs, mostly downs. And the one constant was his intimate relationship with his father, God. So in the presence of our enemies, and as an answer to our enemies, God provides us with a feast of himself. And this is a pattern in scripture. This is not an isolated idea. I'll give you a few examples. In 1 Kings 19... Prophet Elijah, having been threatened with death by his enemy Jezebel, is terrified for his life and says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. It's very dramatic. In verse 5, it says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And it goes on to describe this event where Elijah is drawn powerfully into the presence of God. In the midst of this enemy threat, God prepares a feast for him. The prodigal son, the story that Jesus tells of a young man who's been brought low by enemies of temptation, enemies within himself almost, of greed and ambition. And then when he's coming back of shame and fear that his father won't accept him. And he's hit by this enormous hug from his father who prepares a banquet for him. Peter, the disciple who faces the enemy of temptation, and he fails. He denies his Lord Jesus three times. And then he's met by the risen Lord Jesus on the beach, and he's given breakfast. And Jesus says, do you love me? He's got an opportunity to enter into that intimate relationship again. And this table ought to remind us of the Lord's table And who was sitting there at this table? Who was sitting right there? Judas. Judas, who had been moved by the ultimate enemy, was sitting right there eating the bread and drinking the wine. Jesus in the presence of an enemy. And the most absurdly generous thing that God has ever done 
is symbolized by this table. Give his son for him to be put to death for our sakes and all while the enemy is right there watching on, feeling really proud of himself. God's answer to our enemies is generosity to us. So what can this look like in our lives? I've just, there are a few testimonies, anonymized testimonies I want to share um, from people I know. A woman in grief, having lost her eldest son in an accident, with so much anger and a heart full of unanswered questions, is surprised by the presence of God with her, the palpable presence of God with her as she tends to her garden when she goes outside to to tend to her garden. A woman bed-bound with heartbreak, fighting off fear and hopelessness, visits a friend for prayer and is baptized in the spirit for the first time and discovers a new desire to feast on the word of God. And a man daily tempted by the strongholds of importance and success in his work finds worship, worshipping God, to be the only oasis where his performance is completely and utterly off the table. I wonder if you have your own examples where you felt in the presence of your enemies you've discovered that God has done something unexpected to prepare a table before you. So what is required of us? Very little. Expect it. Expect the unexpected. When we're surrounded by enemies of many shapes and sizes, the last thing we tend to expect is a feast. But there is a feast available, even in the presence of our enemies. And this is not denial. The two coexist as in this verse. Even when our enemies have not been overcome, there is a feast. And I'd love us to do the simple thing that when we think enemy, to also think table. When we're asking, when will I be free of these enemies, God? Which we should ask him. To also ask, where is the feast? (laughs) I wonder if there's something coming up for you uh, where you might want to think about how you could remind yourself to ask that question. So God's generosity is unexpected and we should expect it. Secondly, God's generosity is wasteful. It's wasteful. The next part of Psalm 23 verse 5 says, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Who here has ever been anointed with oil? Oh, quite a lot. That's interesting. Very holy. Um, uh, It's actually, it's not a very common practice. We do occasionally anoint people with oil here, um, often as a symbol of God's blessing. We might sort of put a little cross on somebody's head. Uh, The first time I was ever anointed with oil was on my wedding day, and I did not expect it nor welcome it. So, and many of you will know, some not, but it takes a long time to get your face ready when you're getting married, okay? And something probably less than half of the room will know. You know when you um, uh, paint like a door or 
a surface and you'll use something called primer to get... They have that for faces now. Primer on your face. That's ridiculous. So I had my face primed and I was all ready to go. So imagine my horror when the vicar with oily hands came over to me and went, may the Lord bless you. And I experienced the blessing dripping down my face for the rest of the ceremony. This, this anointing is not the same as that. Thank goodness. I am pleased to say, in the ancient world, oil was a rich and expensive substance. Hosts would anoint, or good hosts would anoint their guests liberally. It had the impression of softening skin, making it bright, and it was extremely fragrant. It was a huge blessing to be anointed with oil. It was a way that they showered love and welcome and honor upon their guests. And if that wasn't enough, the host hands you a cup. The cup, this was the best image I could find, actually. It's water, but, it, but the image is that of expensive wine. And it's not just full to the brim, it's, it's overflowing. It's flowing all over your hands onto the floor. And he keeps pouring more in. It's an overflowing cup. This overflowing cup tells us something really important about God that I would love us to get hold of today. His generosity isn't simply abundant. It's also redundant. It's not just abundant. It's also redundant. There is wine that spills onto the floor. There is wine that will never Make it to your mouth. The host is expressing that as his guest, you are so valuable that he will waste his wealth upon you. You're so valuable, he will waste his wealth upon you. Waste is a really uh, odd thing, and it's often misunderstood. Obviously, waste for us at the moment has a particular meaning where we're thinking more and more about the environment and being really careful about how we think about waste. Um, This concept of waste was actually also not uh, appreciated in the ancient world. And and I think of that example of the poor woman who poured her alabaster jar of perfume on Jesus' feet. And and the, the people who were watching, and I probably would have done the same, thought, what a waste. What a waste. That perfume was a year's wages. How could she waste it on 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 him? Jesus was blown away by it. He was impressed by it. Can you think of many instances in the Gospels where Jesus is blown away by something? There aren't that many, actually. This is one of them. What isn't included is someone coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I gave roughly the same amount that I received. Isn't that wonderful? He said, oh, yes, well done. <laughs> he, he was blown away by this. And what happens there is Judas is so disgusted by this show of waste that he goes to betray Jesus. That's the next event that happens. This was a a defining event. This signed Jesus' death warrant, all because of the idea that God might like waste, that he might not make sense or be balanced, that he might even be wastefully generous himself. Do you know that God wants to give to you wastefully. Not only abundant blessing, but redundant blessing. 
And can your godly desire for good and careful stewardship of resources ever get in the way of that? Because that's a really good thing, stewarding things well. We need both of these, though. We need to steward well and know about the abundance and redundance of God's blessing. Charles Spurgeon said this really simple phrase in one of his sermons, what cup can hold your God? What cup can hold your God? It is insane that we might think he has limits, that we might not know that he's wasteful. There's always more of him to go around. Our cups are small and he is big, to put it simply. So what's required of us? Not much. I said already, expect the blessing of God, but also simply to receive it and to be thankful. Sometimes we need to get over ourselves to receive without objection. Uh, On Friday, a good friend of mine gave me a lift from Oxford to Whitney. And Whitney is not that not that far, but it is quite far when you're having to get back to Oxford afterwards and you're just giving a lift out of the kindness of your heart. So it's over an hour's round trip. And I, my initial reaction was, oh my goodness, no way. Can't do that. No, oh my, this is ridiculous. No, of course. Are you sure? Oh, no. That's my reaction. That's often my reaction when people do really kind things for me. Why don't I just accept it? And I just receive it. I don't, I just need to accept I don't earn all the blessings I receive. I don't earn all of them. We need to accept being more joyful and blessed than we deserve. We better get used to it because that's the God we have. We need to receive the overflowing cup and drink. Just have a drink. Just have a drink. Don't overthink it. Receive it. That's receive it. And then be thankful. I've got two pictures of two boys. I'll show you. You can't really see the one on the right. It's a bit dark. Uh, the one on the left is Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter. You can see he's looking a little bit grumpy there in front of his Christmas presents. And this scene, Dudley says to his parents, How many are there? And they say there's 36, Dudley, or Duddykins, as they call him. And he says, 36, last year there were 37. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, Dudley. We'll go out and get you two more presents. And then there's poor little Charlie Bucket on the right, standing in front of his frankly creepy Christmas present, which is what his father has made for him out of toothpaste caps from the toothpaste factory that he works at. And Charlie's reaction is, oh, thanks, Dad. And we all feel very, very sorry for Charlie at that point. We'll come, I'll come back to that in a second. When I was praying for today, I had a picture of a black hole. You might recognize this black hole. This is the very first picture that's ever been taken of a black hole. Extremely exciting. The black part in the middle is the size of our entire solar system. Hmm. See, we're learning. <laughs> and the picture, so the picture I felt, this black hole, 
is a black hole of discontentment. Discontentment. When, when discontentment receives blessing, it disappears, just like, it, like when something goes into a black hole. It disappears entirely. It does not recognize a gift when it receives it. It is the enemy of an overflowing cup. And it has nothing to do with actual circumstances. So Charlie Bucket, poor little Charlie Bucket, has absolutely nothing and he knows a gift when he gets it. Oh, thank you. But like Dudley, you can have everything and never be satisfied. And Paul wrote this uh, in Philippians 4. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I think we've tolerated a black hole of discontentment for long enough. It's just followed us around like a bad smell we can't get rid of. And it's subtle. It's normal, we say, to never quite be at peace with what we've got. It's normal that the blessings of God don't really move us to gratitude anymore. It's normal to be a bit jealous of other people's homes or families. It's normal to be a bit bitter when a colleague gets promoted. It's normal to look at our lives and think, "Mm, it's okay, I guess. I believe we're carrying around discontentment and that's a societal thing and we want to be free of that because we're people of God. We aren't people of discontentment, we're people of overflowing cups. Lord, I want to pray that where a spirit of discontentment has taken hold, has made itself right at home, that you would cast it out in the name of Jesus, that we would be free. Forgive us, Lord, where where we've not recognized blessings, even when they've been right in front of us. Amen. So, how can we move from a black hole to an overflowing cup? Well, being thankful, as I've already said, is the enemy of discontent. I've had a number of occasions recently where I've just been really grumpy, and I find it's a sinful thing, but just start listing the things I'm thankful And then I get overwhelmed because I think, wow, God is so good. What was I grumpy about? One of the best ways that we have to be thankful to God is to worship him. And worship unseats rivals, rivals of money or status, the things that might make us feel discontented. And worship is also an act of simply holding out your cup. Are there any areas of your life you feel you might need to worship over them. So God's generosity is is unexpected, is wasteful, and finally it is relentless. It will never end. 
In verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I want to take a closer look at this verse and the words in it, because I think it will help us. Uh, The word surely is a word of confident faith. And in the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word, more often than not, is used by God himself in the form of a command. So this is a word with authority and weight behind it. David is saying, this will be. Goodness, when God sees creation and says, it's good, this is the same word. In Psalm 34, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Love. Love is more accurately translated as loving kindness from the Hebrew word that describes the deep love that God has for his chosen people. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me. The word follow doesn't mean trail behind. It more accurately means pursue. It pursues me. And when he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, David is talking about a certain hope that he will permanently sit at the feet of God in the temple that he loves, the sacred place of worship, the place where communion with God is possible. So if I can just paraphrase, I am certain that the intrinsic goodness of God and his heart for me as his beloved will relentlessly pursue me for as long as I live. And I will remain in a place of loving communion with him until the very end of days. That's what he's saying. It's a level of faith that is absolutely awe-inspiring. And if we find it hard to get our heads around the idea that God might be generous to us in the presence of our enemies, or that he might be wastefully generous to us so that we have overflowing cups. How much more are our minds blown by the idea of God's generosity for eternity? Eternity. Did anyone, when you were growing up, ever have an argument with somebody where you said, I'm right, time's infinity? And the other person was like, no, I'm right, times infinity plus one. And you were like, no, you fundamentally don't understand the concept of infinity. (laughs) Yeah, not just me, good. Eternity is forever. It is always. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that God has given us eternal life through Jesus. Is there anything more generous? There can't be anything more generous. It's eternity. There is no eternity plus one. We don't talk about eternity very much for some reason. Have you noticed? It's always there, but we don't talk about it much. I think probably because from the outside, it seems like one of the most far-fetched claims of Christianity, that we get to live forever with God. Maybe that's why, or maybe it's because it's just a bit beyond our brains and we think, you know what? I don't know about any of that, but I I do know that God loves me, and I do know that he wants me to do X, Y, and Z, so I'll just focus on, on the things I know. It's really important to think about eternity. 
and to believe in it. And here's why. Imagine two journeys, two men going on two separate journeys. One man is journeying to be reunited with his beloved family and friends. And the other is journeying to a distant land where he will face his greatest foe. The first man will walk with a spring in his step and hope in his heart. And the second man will drag his feet and cling to every moment he's got. The destination of the journey dramatically changes the journey itself. Dramatically. We're unable to appreciate the generosity of God if we can't at least try and grasp the fact that it's going to go on forever. Now, our lives will be lives that overflow with joy and gratitude and courage. There's this amazing quote from C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. All left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It's really challenging. So this is my encouragement to us. Expect the generosity of God. Receive it. Be thankful for it. And dream of eternity. Meditate on it. Don't put it to one side as something that can't be ever ever understood. Don't let this life fill all your vision. In Isaiah, it says this in chapter 25, speaking of this eternity. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. God will prepare a feast, an ultimate feast, but finally putting an end to our enemies. And we will dwell with him, close by him, in communion with him forever. That's what this psalm is telling us. That's what our faith in Christ also tells us. So just to summarize, God's generosity is unexpected. He lays a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Let's expect that. His generosity is wasteful. We're so valuable that he wastes his generosity upon us. And his generosity is relentless. It pursues us into eternity.
So let's expect it, receive it, be thankful and dream of eternity.